2: George Clooney would rather float away into space and die than spend one more minute with a woman his own age. Eat
3: your fish, eat your fish, eat your fish, eat your fish.
2: I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And this is the NerdApp Podcast. It's Oscar week, nerds. We'll have some Oscar predictions this week with A.A. A. Dowd. He's film editor for A.V. Club, which is like the actually serious part of The Onion.
0: Serious like it's true, not serious like it's all serious.
2: Oh, he's very serious.
0: <laughs> well, he does take movies and the Oscars pretty seriously. So we'll be talking with him about some things that he loves and or hates about the award show itself.
2: But first, Nerdette contributor Logan Jaffe.
0: The last time we heard from Logan, was way back when she was telling us about her nerdy summer camp stories. She was a historical reenactor as a child and someone who's always had a love for old and new tech, which is why it doesn't surprise me that she has a lot of feelings about the movie Her. Her is up for Oscars this year, and as Logan says, that's well-deserved. But the movie, which is about near-future technology, got her thinking about why robots are so often ladies.
3: What are you doing? I'm just looking at the world and writing a new piano piece. Oh, yeah? Can I hear it? Mm-hmm. This is a scene from Her, a film directed by Spike Jones that's up for all sorts of awards this year at the Oscars, including best picture, writing, production design, and original score. I thought this song could be, like, a photograph. Her is this big-shot, independent film set in the future, and it deals with people's changing relationships with technology. I like her photograph. So this sad, kind of dweeby dude named Theodore falls in love with this personal operating system named Samantha. If you haven't seen the film, Samantha is basically an evolution of Siri, the voice of Apple's personal assistant. Samantha seemingly has original thoughts, depth, emotion... You know what? We can actually just ask Siri about it. Siri, do you know Samantha?
2: No, but I'm hoping I'll see her at the Oscars.
3: Okay, well, um, so her makes sense in this very American context that Siri could become Samantha. But if you hop across the pond to the UK, the default voice of their iOS personal assistant is not Siri. It's Daniel.
0: (laughs) Hmm, me. I'm just a humble virtual assistant.
3: Maybe the Brits are just comfortable with a male voice. I mean, they have decades of iconic male butlers to draw on in their pop culture. But in ours, we got Siri, who is actually this woman. I am the voice
1: of Siri. (laughs) There
3: she is! I kind of got chills! Her real name is Susan Bennett. It must have seemed like a no-brainer for Apple to choose a female voice for the interface here in the U.S. Because as Clifford Nass, who studied human and computer relationships at Stanford, put it, people in the U.S. are just historically more accustomed to female avatars. And that when making Siri, Apple had to do some detailed analysis on what the dominant gender stereotypes were that varied depending on which country you're from. Here, technology is almost always a lady.
1: You're the best, Rosie. You betcha, Mr. J. Ah, boy.
3: That's especially mind-boggling because in the real world, we're working hard to chip away at stereotypes about gender roles and trying to open people's minds about gender identity. But as we break down the gender binary for people, we're hardwiring gender identity into technology. Why?
4: That was a story I was telling myself that I was somehow inferior. Isn't that interesting?
0: The past is just a story we tell ourselves.
3: Let's take a look at the story of technology characterized as women and get some clues about how we ended up not just with Siri, but with Samantha and all the other lady robots in between.
0: Uh, uh,
1: you want to
3: talk to Mr. For the moment, sir. The
2: first operators were boys. who Earned Bittman a by. reputation for being oh, rude oh. and abusive. Yes, like to
1: talk
3: to Apple, guess, sir. He's Yep, turn of the century, phone operators were men. But they were so bad at this job, apparently, that the Bell telephone company fired all of them at once and decided it would mostly employ women. In a video clip called Use of Women as Telephone Operators, Judith Moyer explains why. Certainly, there's nothing about the telephone as a technology that says a woman must work at the switchboard and does a better job
0: than a man. But in the 19th century, women were expected to be more docile, more amenable to rules. Men or boys, uh, if They were put under these extreme rules that that women had to work under as operators and didn't like it. They could vote with their feet and leave and go find another job that paid as well or better. Whereas women having fewer options were more constrained, more likely to stay in that job and take it and work
3: for less. So this obedient role as a phone operator better suited the social role of women at the time. Operators also had really strict dress codes and they had to be unmarried. And they even had a set list of responses they could use to customers on the other line. You know, it's almost like they were programmed. Like mechanisms of a giant machine. Like robot women.
1: Stand up, please. You keep saying you got something Bring in different or... bots! Miss 709. Oh, we got to reactivate oh. you. Are you ready?
3: One of the earliest examples of this is My Living Doll. It's a show that ran between 1964 and
1: 1965, featuring... Um, walk forward, please.
3: ...a kind of dweeby guy who isn't quite sure how to relate to this sexy female android. Here's his big moment of realization. If, if a
4: robot such as yourself could be given feeling, human emotions, you'd be the perfect woman. One who does as she's told, reacts the way you want her to react, and... Keeps your mouth shut. No offense, of course.
3: The word offense doesn't compute.
4: Excellent. We're off to a good start.
3: And flash forward 50 years, we get Samantha, who has feeling and has human emotions, and actually reacts to Theodore exactly the way he wants her to, or rather needs her to. Like we see in her, the fundamental dynamics of female technology and male characters is still preserved today. We just get a slightly more nuanced relationship.
2: Are these feelings even real? Or are they just programming? That idea really
0: hurts.
3: And that brings us to the 70s and 80s, when that female techie voice was getting a little sassier. Take this clip from Star Trek. Computer on. Record.
2: Computed and recorded, dear.
0: Computer, you will not address me in that manner. Compute.
3: Computed, dear. All right, you get a female computer again taking commands, but she has a bit more personality, as Spock will tell you about recent repairs to the Starship Enterprise.
1: They seem to feel the ship's computer system lacked the personality. They gave it one. Female, of course.
3: That brings us to the 90s and 2000s, when there's more and more technology in our actual everyday lives, not just in sci fi. Here, sure, where am I? Make hey, a oh, right Turn Buckle up. up, baby.
0: Selecting all surrogates.
1: It said go to the right. It can't mean that. There's Look, a right lake right there. I
2: think it knows where it's it's is knows. Is it is going. The machine knows! Stop yelling at me! No, it's not.
3: All of it's a little frightening, isn't it? The impending rise of the machines. But the voice of that technology, almost always this one woman, lin Zager.
2: Hope for our race, for our planet, and for the future of all living things.
3: Maybe it's just a little less terrifying if the voice of our future overlords is a nice lady. Here's another example. Back in 1980, in the original Battlestar Galactica, the first Cylon robot who didn't look like a hunk of metal was a hunk of man, a character named Andromus. When the show rebooted in 2004, what did the first sinister Cylon we meet look like?
1: The last time anybody saw the Cylons, they looked more like walking toasters. I have
3: feelings, hopes, and wants, and what I want most of all is for you to love me. A hot blonde in a red dress who uses her sex appeal to trick the scientist into letting her blow up the whole planet. Sexy robots. It's about that sense of power. It's the thrill of your own voice commanding an externalized piece of technology. Whether it's Rosie the Robot, Siri, or Samantha. That dynamic still sounds too much like this.
0: Today, we're going to give you a rundown of the sexiest lady
3: robots in cinema history. Number 10, Maria in Fritz Lang's Metropolis. I'd get a wiener schnitzel with Maria and then oil up her robot body and probably do her. I'd probably do her. Number 6, the Stepford Wives. Hot, sexy wives who are robots. They do stuff for you like cook and clean. All right, fine, it's sexist and it's wrong, but... But But nothing. Number 5, Rosie from the Jetsons. All right, say what you will, but that cylindrical six machine gives me a raging hard drive. You get it? It's got plenty of spots for RAM. OK, that's enough. Google's new director of engineering dated the movie Her at about 2032, given its depiction of the future. That's less than 20 years away. By then, we'll have seen monumental leaps in technology and our relationship to it. But will we be able to say the same about the role of women? After seeing her, I'm not sure. Even right now, on Facebook, you can choose from over 50 gender options to identify with. Yet, we seem to still demand gendered technology. And that gender is still largely female because, well, we want our computers to be secretaries and therapists and maybe even to love us unconditionally, like Samantha. I mean, I'm not limited. I can be anywhere and everywhere simultaneously. I'm not tethered to time and space in a way that I would be if I was stuck in a body that's inevitably going to die. Go watch the movie Her, if you haven't yet. I don't know where you are, so I'm not sure where it's playing, but I do know who you can ask. Siri, where can I see the movie Her?
2: Finding movie theaters nearby... Okay, I found 15 theaters. Thanks to Logan Jaffe for that exploration of ladies in tech. You can see clips from all of the different TV shows and movies she references on our website, nerdatpodcast.com. Now it's
0: time for a conversation about movies with A.A. A. Dowd. He's the film editor at the A.V. Club, which is the non-joking side of The Onion.
2: We figured there would be no better person to nerd out about the Oscars with than someone who is legitimately paid to be a movie nerd. Alex, you are pretty much like the biggest Oscar nerd ever, right?
1: I don't know if that's fair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that if you're a cinephile and you're also an Oscar fan, you're a self-loathing Oscar fan which is definitely the case with me. The two vocations are kind of mutually exclusive. But yes, I haven't missed a ceremony since 1995, I think.
0: When you were how old? 11. So staying up late on a Sunday night.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it was Monday for a while.
2: Oh, right. That's it true. It
1: changed to Sunday, and I don't actually have that information. But <laughs> Oh, man, I was going to be so excited if you knew that. Um, sometime, I think in the late 90s, it changed to Sunday.
0: And now you get paid to be a movie nerd, which is a pretty sweet gig at the A.V. Club, right?
1: And the thing about Oscar season is that it doesn't start in January when the nominees are announced. It starts as early as August now with the way that some film journalists cover it. There's a definite wag the dog quality about it because, you know, you have people bemoaning that there are front runners as early as August, which is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy.
0: Reminds me of the same debate we always have about politics, that there used to be a campaign season, now it's just mm-hmm. constant horse race.
1: Exactly. The day after the Oscars, you'll have pieces and they're always kind of tongue in cheek about trying to predict the following year's <laughs> Oscar winners. And it's tongue in cheek, but there's <laughs> still an element that you're still participating to that noise. Yeah, and they're you know? still
0: thinking about it. It means oh, yeah. they actually spent some time. on it. They can put
1: <laughs> like a an irreverent spin on it, but they're thinking about it.
0: You've been watching the Oscars since 1995. What are some of your favorite Oscar moments?
1: These things become really preordained after a while. You know, the same names keep popping up. So when something unexpected happens, that's fun. I remember in 2003 when Adrian Brody won Best Actor... And he rather famously went up there and kind of made out with Halle Berry, who was presenting <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> to him. Um, but what was exciting about that moment was, at least from somebody who finds himself steeped in this all the time, is that that race, to ask a lot of people at the time, pundits and stuff, that race was like, it's either going to be Jack Nicholson for About Schmidt or it's going to be Tom Hanks for Castaway. To actually see somebody who you wouldn't necessarily expect to win, go up there is it, it regardless of how you feel about the winner it's always nice to see a surprise after months and months of people saying this is what it's going to be
0: didn't that lead to brody's diet coke commercials which may be his finest work
1: i'm not <laughs> yes, sure i think it did i mean you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> i would say that i'm actually more into the discussion about the films than i am the ceremony which i often think is kind of a drag i liked the two years that john stewart hosted i thought that he was very funny and i know that some people thought that he didn't have the right tone But I liked him. You always have these montages of these are important moments through the history of film, you know, and you have this montage that shows how movies have dealt with social issues through the years. And you cut back to Jon Stewart saying, and none of those were problems ever again. (laughs) I liked that.
0: The Oscars takes itself maybe the most seriously of all the award shows. You don't hear the same kind of jokes from whoever's hosting as you do at the Golden Globes, who's trying to be like the funnier cousin, Mm -hmm. I think, in terms of at least the telecast. But the Oscars has to figure out a way to actually engage people for a few hours and take seriously the history of film. Right. It's a tough place to be in.
1: Yeah. It's not simply the people who win. I think it's once you've been nominated, you're part of the club. Once they've said that this person is one of our picks, they will show up again. Because they're just in that club, then. And that's another part about how the race is always shrinking. Film appreciation, I think, because the discussion is always around people who we've seen before. But when they do reach out to somebody who's not part of the club yet, you know, I mean, I think in recent years, somebody like Jennifer Lawrence, I think it's a very good chance that she would not be headlining a mega budget franchise right now, The Hunger Games, if they hadn't tossed her a bone with Winner's Bone when she was up for Best Actress for that. I guess that's one of the slightly more exciting things about it is that it does launch careers sometimes and it is exciting to see young, talented people getting their names out there.
0: We could just sort of rapid fire go through some of your favorite picks for the year and we'll jump in in the categories where we know something. Yeah. I was going to ask Greta to jump in on all of these, but I know she hasn't seen a lot
2: of movies this year and she said that she wasn't willing to fake it. It's feminism at its best, you know. <laughs> so Okay. Well, that's good. <laughs> I have actually decided that due to my judgmental characteristics, I am happy to choose my favorites even though I have only seen Dallas Buyers Club. <laughs>
0: You're going to do this the way I do my Final Four bracket, which is just by picking the favorite name of school. exactly. Weirdest mascot, place I would like to visit. Exactly, yeah.
2: I do listen to Morning Edition. I feel like I have a pretty good sense of what most of these films are about. So, you know, I'm not going in totally empty here.
0: We'll just do it in the order that they're showing up on our ballot here that we're all looking at. So, best picture.
1: Alex? In terms of who's going to win, I think in that category, you're actually looking for one set a Dead Heat. I think that it's either going to be... American Hustle, it's going to be Gravity, or it's going to be 12 Years a Slave. All of those have taken like precursor awards at this point, and nobody seems to agree which of those three is going to win. My instinct is that it'll be 12 Years a Slave. My favorite of the nominees is Her. Um, Oh, interesting. Yeah, although I love 12 Years a Slave, too, and I'd be happy to see that win. Especially, honestly, as a kind of really belated rebuttal to something like Gone with the Wind, which is <laughs> very belated, very belated. <laughs> but, you know, Gone with the Wind presenting this kind of romanticized view of the antebellum South and yeah. this idea of the kind slave owners and the happy slaves, you know, and 12 Years a Slave in like one scene punctures that whole idea. Just annihilates that whole yep. premise. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. I would be totally happy with that winning too.
2: So best actor. Greta, you start with best actor. <laughs> oh, okay. This is highly scientific here. It's obviously Chiwetel Ejiofor because slavery. (laughs) (laughs) Is that going to be your answer in all categories Or 12 Years a Slave is there? No. I mean, in this case, I was very torn because I thought Matthew McConaughey did a really good job in Dallas Buyers Club, which is the one movie I saw. (laughs) Which I've seen. I did really appreciate his role. I mean, I could barely recognize him when he first came on screen. I was like, wait, is that really
0: him? You want to give it to him, too, because you're just so enamored with True Detective right now. But that doesn't count
2: right now. Exactly. Exactly. The whole thing. So, yeah, of Four. Also, it's just a really fun name to say. I'm confident saying it because I've heard it enough on NPR. I just think this is it. <laughs> what about you, Alex? Are you going to validate my completely irrelevant opinion?
1: <laughs> I'm not. Um, <laughs> I think he should win. I-, I think that he's the best of those five. I actually think they're all pretty good. The nominees are Christian Bale in American Hustle, Bruce Stern in Nebraska, DiCaprio in The Wolf of Wall Street, Chuie Tell for Twelve Years a Slave and McConaughey for Dallas Buyers Club. McConaughey is probably going to win, but I think this is one that could go in a number of directions. You said that you can't count True Detective, but <laughs> I think that that doesn't necessarily describe the mindset of the people who are voting. Sure. I'm not sure when the ballots actually went out and when people had to have their answers. I know the True Detective train has just picked up steam; everybody's talking about it now. But I was reading something today saying it was kind of the anti-Norbit for him <laughs> this year. <laughs> that the fact that he was in that. That really makes him look better. The reference being that a few years ago, Eddie Murphy was up for Dreamgirls for supporting actor. And I think the weekend of the Oscars, Norbit was coming out.
0: (laughs) Just to remind everyone
1: (laughs) that
0: this is a thing he does too. Exactly,
1: (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think it'll be McConaughey. But, you know, I could be wrong.
0: I would be happy with either of those. Yeah. And I've seen both of those movies. So that's the most concise and informed opinion <laughs> of the Nerdec podcast co-host you're going to get on that category. Actress in a leading role. We have Amy Adams, Kate Blanchett, Sandra Bullock, Judy Dench, and Meryl Streep. That's a really solid list right there. It's a really solid list of ladies. But I think we could go back to my favorite Onion headline from like the last month, which is... Uh, Meryl Streep acquitted because they couldn't find a jury of her peers, (laughs) something to that effect. She has no peers, so she can't be tried in court.
1: (laughs) Um. Best actress as a category frequently annoys me because I I, I feel like we're dealing with a group of about a dozen people that members of the Academy are familiar with. And even more so than any of the other categories, I feel like that's one where the same names year in, and year out, regardless of if what they're doing is even worthwhile, just pop up again and again. It's like people are just checking off the same names. And all of these people are perennials.
0: It's like the Tina Fey joke from Golden Globes where she said, you know, Meryl Streep is nominated tonight, proving that there are great roles in Hollywood for Meryl Streep's over 60. (laughs) But I'm going to go with Streep even though it's the most obvious just check off if you've never seen any of the movies because my love for Augusto Sage County knows no bounds. <laughs> Here's my obnoxious hat for a second. I got to see Augusto Sage County here in Chicago when it was on stage, and Deanna Dunnigan is one of my favorite Chicago actresses. So I want it to be sort of an award for Deanna through Merrill because that first performance that they did on stage here in Steppenwolf inspired people to turn this play into a movie, and this movie is now getting attention for being an imperfect film of a pretty perfect american drama on stage but i'm still going to give it for deanna especially that dinner table scene yeah Um, which if you saw the movie you know what i'm talking about if you saw the play you know what i'm talking about if you've had dinner with your own family at thanksgiving (laughs) you know what i'm talking about it's often the most explosive uh, real moments can happen over mashed potatoes so for best director next up we have american hustle david o russell gravity Belfonzo corone Nebraska, Alexander Payne, 12 Years a Slave, Steve McQueen, and The Wolf of Wall Street, Martin Scorsese.
2: Greta? I think I'm going to give David O. Russell his credit, even though he's notoriously difficult to work with. I found him charming on Fresh Air.
1: I'm pro-Steve McQueen on this one. Yeah, me too. Yeah. The Wolf of Wall Street is a blast, so I think that Scorsese is doing pretty strong work there, too. And I can't argue with the sort of technical ingenuity of gravity. But I think that with 12 Years a Slave, I think that it's not only pretty superbly directed, but I think for McQueen, it's also a step forward. And I, always, I felt with his earlier stuff, with his, his two other films, Hunger and Shame, that he was kind of showboating around serious topics and not really engaging with them. I almost feel as though he's so humbled by the material that he's dealing with in 12 Years a Slave that he sort of allows his own presence as a filmmaker to move to the background.
0: Yeah, when you're dealing with a storyline that's that compelling, you can get out of the way. Yeah. Original screenplay... We have American Hustle, Blue Jasmine, Dallas Buyers Club, Her, and Nebraska. I think I'm going to have to go with Her, as we heard earlier in the episode. I think it takes a nuanced look at our evolving relationship with technology. The performances are great. And I'm excited to see how we view this movie in 20 years, to be honest. Mm -hmm. When we have more technology like this in our lives, is this movie going to seem hilarious? (laughs) Or is it going to stand up as sort of... Unsettling. I was just unsettled by this movie yeah. more than anything.
1: Yeah, I would love to see her win.
0: All right, adapted screenplay. You want to read them off for us, Alex?
1: Yeah, it's Before Midnight, Captain Phillips, philomena Twelve Years a Slave, and The Wolf of Wall Street. And I would love to see Before Midnight win this. This is the one award that if if that won, that would make me the happiest of everything.
0: Oh, really? So yeah. this is one of your favorite? Yeah, I think. Well,
1: I think then. it's the best script of the year. Before Sunrise in 95, before Sunset in 2004, and uh, before Midnight last year.
2: So do you think the script is that excellent standing on its own, or is it a result of the preceding films that makes it so powerful?
1: That's really tough to say, I guess, because at this point my investment in these characters and in this story is very much linked to what I've seen in those other films.
0: I think for the Oscars to give an award to the end of the trilogy, is an okay way to give a nod to the whole package.
1: And yeah, did it with Lord of the Rings.
0: Yeah. Right, right. Was, I'm so glad you did that because I was going to be like, it's like that at Lord of the Rings. <laughs> but I didn't have to bring out my nerd voice. You did it for me. Yep. Yeah. Thanks to A.A. A. Dowd for stopping by to talk about movies with Nerdette.
2: You can follow A.A. Dowd on Twitter. He is at A.A. A. Dowd.
0: D-O-W-D.
2: Cocktails before homework?
0: Yes. Nerdette booze nerd Rebecca
4: Polson has a drink inspired by one of her favorite Oscar nominees this year. This week, our cocktail inspiration comes from Room on the Broom, an animated short starring nerd at fave Gillian Anderson that's up for an Oscar on Sunday. Room on the Broom is about a diverse group of critters that, with a little bit of magic, manage to form a family. So I chose one of my very favorite cocktails that also combines unexpected elements, the Jungle Bird. I've been known to describe this drink as the thinking person's Long Island iced tea. It's super boozy, refreshing, and just a little bit weird. Start with an ounce and a half of pineapple juice. I like to use an all-natural brand with a lot of pulp to it because it gives your drink a kind of fluffy orange julius texture, but even the dull stuff from the giant can is pretty great. Add a half an ounce each of fresh lime juice and simple syrup. Then we add the booze. Three quarters of an ounce of Campari and an ounce and a half of rich molassesy blackstrap rum. Give it a hard shake and serve it over ice in a rocks glass. The result is a whimsical but decidedly adult beverage with a great, straight-out-of-the-crayon-box crimson hue. Going to a screening of the animated Oscar shorts has definitely been one of my favorite nerd activities this year. Check out the Nerd at Tumblr for a peek at The Missing Scarf, an Irish film narrated by super-nerd George Takai. It didn't quite make the list of nominees, but was included as highly commended in the screening I saw, and I think it's pretty great.
2: Thanks to Booze Nerd Rebecca Polson for that cocktail. I could see this being good. Not only is it Oscar-themed, but you could actually sip this while watching the Oscars, right? Absolutely. And the full recipe, if you didn't take notes as you were listening,
0: which is fair, is available at nerdappodcast.com.
2: I'm really upset that people don't take notes while listening to this show, <laughs> Speaking of notes and maybe homework. First up, A.A. A. Dowd, film editor of the A.V. Club, wants you to do this.
1: Check out Linklater's before films. It's uh, before sunrise, before sunset, and now before midnight. They're all available on various formats. Even if not experienced with nine years between them, they're well worth your time.
2: Your other piece of homework this week is to read Vampires in the Lemon Grove. It's a collection of short stories by Karen Russell, who you might remember from having written Swamplandia. I don't usually like short fiction, but it's got stories about everything from presidents reincarnated into horses to (laughs) vampires who eat lemons to avoid their thirst for blood. It's quite lovely. She's so good at that magical realism. I have just been completely sucked in by these stories, so I highly recommend them. You should check it out. We've got a link to the book on our website, nerdappodcast.com.
0: That's it for this week. We hope your week is full of catching up on Oscar nominees, be watching movies. That's your other piece of homework. Watch some of the great films that are nominated this year that we heard more about from A.A. Dowd. Thanks to him for stopping by from his busy schedule as the film editor at the A.V. Club. Which, by the
2: way, is a really great nerdy name. (laughs) And thanks to contributor Logan Jaffe. Can't wait to see what she comes up with next. Thanks to Joe Disseau and Patrick Smith for their production help this week. Thanks also to you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Throw some stars
0: on iTunes if you're feeling generous.
2: Yeah, that would be nice.
0: Thanks to our home stations,
2: WBEZ and WCQS. Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear.
0: Do your homework.
2: Do your homework.
0: Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast,